0: I'm Dominic Steele, and thanks for joining us. We're talking today, Understanding, Loving, and Ministering to Exvangelicals with Jerry Jones Sparks. Exvangelicals, it's a word that we hadn't heard of until a couple of years ago, but increasingly we're seeing people self-identify as being part of that broad social movement. Jerry Jones Sparks is with me. She's the outreach pastor for St. James Croydon in Sydney's Inner West, and also the director of the Good News Course. Uh, Jerry, you've got a significant place in your mm. pastor's heart for the Evangelical. Mm. Um, well, tell us about your pastor's heart. But even before that, what is an evangelical? <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, an evangelical, like many things born in the last ten years, uh, has kind of shaped up uh, through mediums on the internet and social media, and so that definition is very loose. Um, but I think, in general. Exvangelical is a person who was formerly in an evangelical community in a church, usually heavily involved, uh, but had a period of deconstructing faith. That's another term you'll come across, Mm -hmm. deconstruction, um, and would now define themselves not just not Christian or not evangelical anymore, but exvangelical because their core convictions, if you will, um, that they would be critical of evangelicalism.
0: Well, let's talk deconstruction in a moment. But if we go first on Mm. ex-evangelical, presuming you're an ex-evangelical, you used to be an evangelical, Mm. so what is an evangelical? Mm. And, I mean, I would say, as somebody in Australia or I think somebody in Great Britain might Mm. say, evangelical is infallibility of scripture, penal substitutionary, atonement, complementarian, those kind of things. Whereas over in the United States, that word seems to feel more like white Trump voter. Um, mm. Is an ex-evangelical in the United States different to mm. an ex-evangelical in Australia?
1: I think so. I think that's right. It's got to be. There's mm-hmm. such different contexts, um, but so much of the literature and the movement has been uh, spearheaded by many in American contexts. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I'd love to see some more research and, and insight come out of the Australian context.
0: And yeah. so, do you think the Australian person who's mm. grabbed onto the label of evangelical mm. is kind of just adopting some of the thinking of the United States, or are they actually mm. identifying as a separate group?
1: No, I I think there's a bit of both. I Mm -hmm. don't think there's a a thoughtless adoption by any Mm -hmm. means. Um, I think the process of deconstruction by its very nature, it's implied in the word, uh, is a very laborious process. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of wrestle and intentionality Mm -hmm. that happens through that period. Um, So I think there's a bit of both. I think most people would have A nuance there if they're in australia sure Mm.
0: what do you mean by deconstruction what's going on there because it's something different to just if you we might say classically falling away
1: yeah Yeah. that's exactly right dominic i think um we imagine someone who classically falls away uh, to have a sudden turning point or just lose a sense of their their faith whereas deconstructionism happens over a period of time months usually years um and that has to do with uh and intellectual, um, uh, a cognitive dissonance with some of the doctrines of the evangelical mm-hmm. church, um, but also probably, and tied to that, and it's really hard to separate these things, and I don't think we should, but practice that occurs in the evangelical church that's so usually having a problem and a, a wrestle with
0: both. Mm. I was talking to somebody and they are saying, on the one hand, it's got to do with disagreeing theologically. Mm. But on the other hand, there's usually some bruising, hurt, emotional complexity, feeling hurt by the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think there is a lot of hurt. But I go one step further to say um, often there's also harm caused by the church or church communities, and that creates opportunity for spiritual trauma. And that's often very serious because, uh, as we know, there's a spiritual realm involved there, um, but the the fundamental identity we, we have as Christians is being pulled apart. So that creates a real crisis and trauma in itself.
0: So, now let's go to your pastor's mm, heart because sure. you've given us kind of the academic, but mm. you've actually got friends, um, and so it's not just an issue of stuff you've read in a book for you.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, a, a bunch of my peers and people I minister to now um have been through or are going through a deconstruction process. Um, I went through a mini one of my own, if I'm honest, when I was studying at Theological College. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, there was a whole bunch of things happening in my life, uh, which made me uh, ask hard questions Mm -hmm. of what I'd always assumed to be true. Um, And, if I'm honest, and I don't think this is normative, um, I was supported by some really great people around me um, and that process was quite short. Um, once I understood that the life, death and resurrection of Jesus uh, was something uh, real and credible, um, the other things that flowed out from that, um, issues of, of how church engages with justice, for example, or certain practices we have. Mm -hmm. That just gave me the safety and freedom to explore that without having that identity crisis.
0: Mm. Mm. Although I I do remember my principal at Theological College, Mm. Peter Jensen, saying he actually thought it was one of the roles of the Theological College to throw up up at you all the hardest questions about Christianity. And Mm. so that you would actually go through a process of Sure. Really, what you just described.
1: Yes, I think um, it wasn't particularly that I, I was at theological college engaging with ideas, but I had experienced spiritual trauma myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, that made me hold all this cognitive dissonance together and it forced me to reckon with it in a new way.
0: D- different friends, mm-hmm. I take it, have experienced it differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's it look like for some different people? Put some flesh on the. I think
1: for. For many people, um, there's been issues of uh, serious evil and abuse that they have witnessed um, in the church and uh, tried to be a prophetic voice about, against, um, and for whatever range of factors we're generalizing here, mm-hmm. um, they were, were unable to do that, and mm-hmm. uh, that created Dis, that friction, I think, created distance uh, between them and their church community, and so they were left grappling with what was left of their faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's something difficult about being someone on the margins um, having something prophetic to say. Um, by its virtue, you're already on the margins. And, and it's really easy to be pushed out by you know the cultural group at the center.
0: What's your word? Mm-hmm to the pastor, the Bible study group leader um, who is listening, watching us now mm. and is thinking, oh, I wonder if they might be talking about somebody in my church. who might mm. be like that. You yeah. Know, or going uh, through that. Sure.
1: Yeah. If you have young people in your church, they likely are, um, it's a good thing if you've heard from them. That means that they trust you and you're a safe person for them. Uh I think I would say a couple things. Uh, the first is something that might be true of, uh, reformed traditions like ours, Dominic. I think because we value our doctrine so closely and we want to defend it in some ways, uh, it's easy for us to have a posture of defensiveness without realizing it. Mm-hmm. It's easy for us to be fearful about other ideas because they feel threatening to what we hold as so sacred and so important. Um, and I, I think the way forward is not to hold our orthodoxy uh, less tightly than we do, but less fearfully, I think. Um, when Paul talks to Timothy um, in the second short letter he writes, Timothy's in a in a context where he's being really persecuted, and or this persecution around him at least that we know of. And there are false, false teachers, uh, but Paul is super optimistic about the gospel. He has a great sense of gospel op- optimism, and I think that lands in our understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, that we're given a spirit of. Uh, of power and of love and not one of fear or timidity. Um, and I think understanding the Holy Spirit's role in uh in ourselves, um, how he speaks to us through his word and works through his people, uh, is key in helping us move forward with confidence and a sense of gospel optimism. So when an idea that might sound like an idea coming from the cultural left or sounds too liberal for us comes up in conversation, that we don't shut it down because we feel fearful that, um, what's so core to what we believe is, is being pulled away. Um, I think that can help us have, um, confidence um, as we engage with people and not defensiveness.
0: The pastor, mm-hmm. um, imagine I'm 57 <laughs> and you're 25 <laughs> and, and you're having an ex-evangelical kind of um, meander. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's the right, I don't know what the right word would be, but we'll run I would with say that. wrestle maybe. Wrestle, wrestle, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's
1: sincere. Yeah,
0: it's sincere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, what should I do? What might you say? What might I say in yeah. best practice? Yeah, yeah,
1: fantastic. Um, I'd ask, I'd want you to really listen to me. Um, I think to really understand my experience. Um, I think and perhaps to
0: try and create a space where it was safe to sure, do that. Sure, sure.
1: I, I think we're we're often too quick to diminish the value of experience um, because we know God's truth is. Um, authority over all Mm -hmm. our experiences. Uh, But that doesn't mean people's experiences aren't valid or they can't bring insight and learning for us. Um, And I think that's a huge part of loving people well. Think of every difficult pastoral conversation you've had. There's always a great amount of listening that we should Mm. be doing that should be 95% of our time. Um, And I think being really slow to direct people for a way forward especially if they have um, experienced some kind of harm or hurt, uh, the next step for them is probably to find some healing, um, whether that uh, is is with a medical professional or whether that is just giving them time and space um, to explore the things that they need to explore. I think not rushing them to get to a certain point on our schedule is really important. We can be confident that God is always working um, and he loves this person more than we do and he's faithful to save and he will start the good work that he started in the people that we love. Um, So just having that openness and listening ear when someone's telling you that
0: I mean, you say medical professional. Yeah.
1: I'm referring to uh, the spiritual trauma, uh, which is so connected with our whole bodies. Mm-hmm. We're embodied people. So spiritual trauma affects our psychology. It affects our bodies. So um, medical professionals are probably part of
0: the puzzle at So some a psychologist point. type person. Yeah, yeah but yeah.
1: probably also a doctor and mm-hmm. a whole bunch of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Diane Langston, Dr. Diane Langston out of the US is a, is a great person to, uh, she's done probably the most leading research with spiritual trauma. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to think about a theological framework, uh, for trauma and, and theology, Scott Harrow is coming out with a great book. So, mm-hmm. um, those are some good resources if you want to find out more. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so listening well is so, so, uh, important. And I think genuinely engaging with questions that people have. If you are a minister, a pastor at a church, someone with some kind of spiritual authority, um, then you likely represent to them and embody the very things that they're struggling with. Um, so being aware of the power that you have in those conversations uh, to to pray as it's coming to you and ask God for help and being tender, um, aware of your own power, June, encourage us us to be merciful on those who doubt that they might be restored to the Lord. And I think we as pastors play such a key role in that process. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's more than a, a therapeutic, s- making a safe space. There's, um, I think there's, a, a spiritual authority and, um, privilege that we have to uh, listen well and engage with those things. Um, my as as I was coming on this Dominic, I wanted to call up my ex evangelical friends to do this with integrity and to make sure they didn't think I was talking about them behind their backs. And one of them has uh been doing a bunch of research um while she was at the Geneva Institute, um doing some qualitative surveys um, that has produced a thesis along with uh, some literature review um about the evangelical experience um the ex evangelical sorry experience in in Sydney. A lot of those service were with Sydney Anglicans and some independent people, some Hillsong people. Um, and that's our context here. Mm-hmm. It might not be everyone's context. Um, but what really uh what really uh, she I'll phrase that again. Her key findings in her thesis um, had to really do with the use of power, uh, the use of power to create inequitable systems and experiences of church, um, but also the use of power to create, uh, a fear. Um, and again, this is a tricky thing for us to wrap our heads around because often we don't realize how much power we have. Um, often we don't mean to, to yield it in a negative way. Um, but I, I really do see that as a, as a pattern in a lot of these uh, deconstruction stories um, that there's a frustration with how power creates sin in church communities, um, how it might facilitate bullying or abuse um, or misogyny even on, on the day-to-day experience of, of women in church. Um, so that's That's something for us to think really hard about and probably do a whole bunch of self-evaluation in and make sure we've got structures around us that protect us from abusing power and, more importantly, protect us from abusing power or harming the sheep that we lead. Mm. Yeah.
0: How might we do that better?
1: Yeah. I have so many answers to that question. Um, We can do better firstly by not having a fearful posture in how we engage with people or engage with doctrines we might not agree with. Um, That drives us towards humility rather than theological pride. And again, that doesn't mean we don't hold orthodoxy tightly. We can be confident that if we stray, uh, that God will correct us, like He's always corrected His church. There's always been a a bit of a wave, and we've we've found our way back in the last 2,000 years. So we can be confident um, that any one of us can't uh, pull down the kingdom of God, that we don't have to carry that on our shoulders, uh, that orthodoxy has a rich history in our tradition, that God's Spirit is working through His Word and His people. Um, and He will course correct us if need be. So we can move forward in confidence and with humility. I think the second thing that I would say is I think connected to the confidence that we have about our doctrine should lead us uh, to be in to be able to engage with nuance in our theology. I think it should lead us. Uh, to not have a simplistic approach uh, to cultural issues, to not have a simplistic approach to justice issues, to not have a simplistic approach to really anything, not even the gospel. Uh, the gospel is simple and accessible for everyone. But as we delve deeper into it, it's rich, it's profound, it's complex. Um, and I think that means we can be equipped by God's word and God's spirit for all of life. Um, and it frees us to be able to engage with the nuances of that person's situation or that person's experience or this particular doctrine applied to this issue in this context, uh, that frees us up to do that. And we have to be willing to do that. That takes time. Mm. Uh, that takes us making mistakes, apologizing, uh, seeking repentance. Um, but that process mo- moves far more smoothly than a simplistic process. I think another barrier that stops us there is uh, a fear of losing our focus on the main thing. I'm a mission pastor, so uh, I I understand this more than most. Um, our priority is for people to come to know and love the Lord Jesus, that they might find freedom in him. Uh, but we must remember that our obedience to the Lord is missional. And by obedience, I don't just mean uh the things that we're called not to do, but the things that we are called to do, which is to love the people around us, to love the people we lead, uh, to practice mercy and justice and all the things that Jesus demonstrates for us in the New Testament, New Testament implores us to do. That is our obedience. That's missional in itself. That is the aroma of Christ that flows out from our community. Um, That is gospel witness that we want to have. So slowing down to journey with people who are having a deconstruction process um, is not the opposite of mission. It is part of our mission. Uh, we can be confident that it's a faithful thing to do and a good use of our time while there might be other priorities in how we use our time. Uh, I think we should be faithful to have mercy on those who doubt and um even further, if, if someone's been harmed and sinned against, to treat them as a, as a priority, uh, that they deserve extra love, <laughs> extra attention.
0: As a mission pastor, mm. um, you just talked about what we could learn mm-hmm. from uh, both the stories of friends of yours, but mm-hmm. also these stories in this friend's thesis. Um, I'm imagining as you read that thesis mm-hmm. and as you think of your friends, you're, you're not just thinking... Um, uh, what I can, and you're thinking, my heart is for you to re-know yeah. the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. um, now, uh, role play for us mm. some strategies for mm. of what I mean uh, uh, you might do for some of those people whose profiles mm. you read over the last couple of days. Yeah,
1: sure. Well, as I read it this morning, I just wept. I wept. Um, knowing the grief that these people have experienced and the harm that they've experienced. Um, So that's my first response. Uh, The second is I don't have a strategy, Dominic. Um, These people are in my lives, not because uh, they're they're a project to me, and that's probably not what you were saying, but they're first my friends, and Mm -hmm. I want to love them without condition. Um, If they never accept the Lord Jesus. I've still done a faithful thing by journeying with them in their lives. Um, I want them to feel like I'm not going to Bible bash them every time we speak. Um, I want to keep listening from them and always learn from them. They've taught me a great deal of things. When I'm in church spaces, it's easy for me actually to, um, to become a bit softened to how evil sin is. Um, when I spend time with them, I'm always reminded that I, I should hate evil as much as they do. Um, they hate injustice. They hate people being treated with harm. And for many of them, um, they haven't had the opportunity to experience reconciliation or even the option to extend forgiveness to those who've harmed them. Uh, so that, that shows us that. More often than not, the onus is on us. The onus is
0: on... That does sound like you you think, ah, if I had my Mm. optimum outcome, Mm. I'd like to devise a moment where they could say to whoever it was who had offended, hurt them, whatever, what had happened, and then seek somehow reconciliation or something. Is that right at all or...?
1: Yeah, but I don't... Because
0: if there's been trauma... I'm not going to be able to get that fixed unless Mm. and I'm not going to be able to want to even consider coming to church unless somehow that's addressed, you know.
1: Yes. And again, um, no one I've I've met or spoken with uh, has become disillusioned with the church because of one or two offenses. There's Mm -hmm. always been some kind of grievous harm or deep hurt over a long period of time. What uh, they have failed to receive, and I think, again, the onus is on us, the responsibility is on us as God's people because this is often how God works, um, is not just through uh, the text on on a page, which is powerful to save in itself. But in normative ways, the text and God's people always go together. People uh, deliver the good news. And if the person who has delivered the good news to you has harmed you. That does undermine the message. Um, again, I, we're human. We don't. We can't uh, rob the gospel of its power in itself. Um, but that's often what happens. So mm-hmm. the thing I would want most for them um, is not to hear the gospel again, but to experience gospel love.
0: Thanks so much for coming in. Sure. My guest on The Pastor's Heart, Jerry Jones Sparks. She is the Outreach Pastor at St. James Croydon in Sydney's Inner West. Thanks for your company this afternoon on The Pastor's Heart, and we will look forward to you being back with us next Tuesday afternoon.